I'm Erica. And I'm David. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Erica, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I'm Erica. I'm a recurring Topic Lord. I want to plug taking an allergy pill right before you appear on Topic Lords, because it will control your allergies. And also, you might get something unexpected, something sleepy, something punchy. Who knows? <laughs> do, do you punch people on allergy pills? No, I, I don't. Um, maybe I should start, though. Maybe that would be um, unexpected and add a little dash of something to my little pizzazz. <laughs> Since I'm sitting right next to Erica, I think I know how this is going to end. <laughs> I'm David, um, and I would like to plug taking a nap in the afternoon if you're able to do so. I used to be a nap skeptic for a long time, and over the past six months or so, um, especially during the summer, I, I've become quite a fan of taking afternoon naps. So um, I think this is really great if you are in a position where you're able to do so. Yeah, yeah. I've never been I've never been good at napping, but it sounds nice. It's, it's never too late, as I've discovered. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always been curious about polyphasic sleep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And more specifically about how supposedly if you do some of these really intense polyphasic sleep regimens, you learn to just sleep on a dime. Like you could just fall asleep immediately. Mm. It's, it's actually less of a factor for me now, now that I don't have as much difficulty sleeping as I used to. But I, I still don't feel like I fall asleep easily enough to make naps worthwhile. I feel like yeah, I would spend more time falling asleep and then waking up than I would actually sleeping. Yeah. Taking allergy pills, though, I could just do that nonstop. <laughs> it might help you with napping, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Although I'm not sure, not sure I, any person with medical training would recommend that approach. No, I'm not I'm not suggesting that we take uh, allergy pills recreationally. Um, for me, I'm just experiencing a lot of allergies. So um, I'm trying to kind of like calm my immune system down while I figure out like what's what exactly is making me allergic? Have you you haven't figured it out yet? No, I mean I think it's I think it's many things, and I'm I'm really reluctant to go on the. There's like a diet that you can go on. I forget exactly what it's called, but you basically just start with like boiled spinach, and you eat boiled spinach for like two days, and then you add in foods. So right. Like you add in like cauliflower or something, and then you eat boiled spinach and cauliflower for two days and you add in chicken or something i just don't have the willpower to do something like that so uh i'm just trying to like beat my yeah. system back while i so in order to do that i need to like pair it with like i'd need to be in a foreign country or something i need to be at disney world where yeah. here at Disney World, you only eat boiled spinach for the first two days. And I'm like, well, all right, if that's how you do it. Yeah. The yeah, yeah, right, right. Like so somewhere where you understand that the rules have changed and they're outside of your control. And then you can just kind of go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, or at least where I can fool myself into believing that. Yeah. Plausibly. <laughs> this is sounding a lot like a cult. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've covered cults before on the show, like the cult of the... Um, the fourth grader grape chewers uh, and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, we've covered that before. Still thinking about who gets to chew the grape next. Who gets to chew the grape next? Yeah, I, I forget. After I told you that and I told you who the grape was going to next, then like the um, the story like uh, deleted itself from my memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You should, I should tell you this, your story of the fake plastic grape and then the sign-up yeah. sheet at some point. <laughs> because it's pretty entertaining yeah the vagaries of the story but like um like all the people involved and in, and the order in which they were supposed to get the grape like those details kind of faded away i think that's what yeah. happens like when you tell stories too many times so in my case that was just once <laughs> <laughs> jim do you have wow. anything to plug <laughs> do i have anything to plug um Wow, I, sh I should really just have something. I should have something in my back pocket for when someone asks me that because I always have things to plug when nobody asks me. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you were if you were like a regular appearing on a podcast, you might um, you might have like some ideas on hand to to go with. But I I understand that this is a this is an infrequent gig for you. I'm gonna plug putting things in your nose. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> you, you put things like if you put something that like dissolves in your nose, it'll dissolve in your mucus, and then your mucus will get colored in a funny way as it comes out, and that's pretty funny. Like a plastic grape that dissolves into <laughs> this is dye. This is basically what happened. I think Winston put like a a gummy vitamin up his oh, nose. It was, a, it was a Flintstones chewable vitamin. Did you have to go to the the hospital? No, no. He tur- it actually turned out that he only put like the cr- he said that he put the crumbs in there. Okay. So <laughs> so he he ate most of the vitamin and then put the crumbs in his nose and then oh, he. St- like purple mucus started draining out. Oh my god. This seems like a big moment for you. Like I saw you posting about it in multiple places. Like it seems like a big like formative moment for you and your child. <laughs> <laughs> He's never put anything in his nose before and that's a wow. that's a I remember when we were talking to uh the doctor about how like Winston isn't crawling. He's not crawling yet. Yeah. And they were like it's okay. Crawling isn't a, a milestone. Oh. There are like milestones of development and crawling doesn't count as one apparently. But like w- walking does, for example, like if your kid doesn't end up or doesn't walk, then you're in trouble. You know what they say? You have to learn to put things up your nose before you walk. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I'm getting at is that like, I'm pretty sure putting things in your nose is a milestone. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, how do you get to freebasing? Right, right. Yeah. This podcast has got to come with like a content warning, you know, like recreational drug use and cults and stuff. Like we're covering all the, the big heavy topics today. Stick, sticking things in your different orifices. Sticking things right, in your yes. orifices. <laughs> Make sure this one gets a content warning. <laughs> well, they're all rated E for explicit. <laughs> Are we ready to start on some topics? Sure. Sure. That sounds good. Erica, your topic is a partnership between you and a tool. I'm going to say that this is um, like maybe like my least favorite thing that I bought during the pandemic. Um, I got really excited about cast iron. And I know that we've talked a lot about cast iron in the Topic Lords Discord. But <laughs> I got myself like a, a very light field pan. So I actually have it in front of me. Oh, so we can hear what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So this is from nice. the Field Company. I think it's like a 10 or 10 and a half inch pan. It's about, I'm going to say it's about like six or six and a half pounds, maybe a little bit heavier. It's very nice. Um, it comes like pre-seasoned, but then you have to work on the seasoning. And um, I've just, um, I think I hate this thing. Like I... <laughs> <laughs> I've started taking taking to like calling this um, pan Proud Boy, which is probably like um, unpopular, but like you know, it, it's kind of like a sign of the times. Um, it's going to remind me of this phase of the political pandemical nightmare. So I've I've seasoned it. I've done I've done right by it. I've put in multiple layers. I've done it upside down in the oven. You know, like the oils that they recommend and everything. And then when something like sticks to the pan, I try to soak it a little bit. I wash it off with salt. I scrub it down with a wooden spoon and and like a salt paste and stuff. And what ends up happening is just that like I hate this pan. I leave it sitting on the counter for, uh, you know, like a week until the oil is like rancid. And then I don't know what to do with it at all. And so uh, I have like a a thing that they suggested that I order with it, which is like, um, it's like a piece of chain mail. And I thought it was supposed to like be a cast iron scrubber, but it's taken like the patina entirely off. And so like now I have to kind of like start over with this pan. And I don't know how people are supposed to cook with these things. Like I just got myself <laughs> like a, you know, like a stainless steel pan. It's fine. It's like a little hard to clean, but it doesn't like ruin it every time I clean it. I don't have to like make my own cleaning devices to clean the stainless steel pan. <laughs> this is this is really funny to me because I like a few months ago there was a tweet go it's got like 10,000 retweets a thread talking about how like it's impossible to destroy a, a, a cast iron pan like no matter what you do to it it's always going to be a lump of iron. 
Yeah, but like a, a shitty rump of iron. And like it right, came with right. It. One you don't actually want to cook with. Yeah, it came with like a like a card, like welcome to your like, you know, field pan experience or whatever, your field company pan experience. This is a partnership between you and a tool. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, but but like the partnership sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, it's it's accurate to many human partnerships. <laughs> I, I found that this motto like has a lot of utility as sort of a non sequitur in conversation, or <laughs> occasionally as like a punchline that's not expected. So there have been all kinds of situations in which I, over the past two years, have said it's a partnership between you and a tool in a totally facetious manner, <laughs> which is like only actually sometimes funny under the circumstances. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that sounds that sounds like it's always funny to me. Okay. I would laugh every time. You're welcome to use this line as much as I mean, you would that, like. That's sort of like the utility that we've gotten out of this pan. It's been like a couple of good cornbreads. Bacon is good in the pan. Some, some nice bacon, which led to some like nasty cleanup uh, events in our home. <laughs> and like this, this one phrase that we get to use over and over again, like more, way more often than we use the actual pan. <laughs> I tell you, I've been cooking for like, like five ni- five meals a week for like two years. Wow! I just use a fucking nonstick pan. Yeah, like the kind it's th- it's like thirty bucks. Yeah, uh, you can't turn up the heat or or like toxins come off the pan. Yeah, it it wears out after like six months, and you spend thirty bucks on a new one. It's not yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have one of those. Um, uh, we call it old slicky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not good for like um searing meats and stuff like that but it's basically fine and like you can clean yeah. it in 30 seconds or less it's incredible yeah no it's yeah. very nice in that way you but yes I, I i have noticed that i remember like reading about reductions mm-hmm. or 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 deglazing um mm-hmm. and finding out that you cannot deglaze a non-stick pan because there's nothing nothing sticks to it Right, right. Which is it's a little sad, but you know, I've got, there's lots of lots of cooking techniques still available to me without having to deal with. Uh, although stainless steel sounds nice, I could I could look into that. We have like a a nabe from Japan that um that's is that stainless steel? I'm sure it is. Yeah, it's like a different kind of stainless steel that like nothing sticks to you though. That's our best cooking. Yeah, thing. Bought it for thirty dollars in a new Tori in Kyoto in two thousand twelve. Yeah, and it's still it's still going strong. Whereas, like, we've cycled through all of these like Western style pans, and you know they come away with like good nicknames and a lot of like distress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it did allow me to get one of these chainmail things though, which is kind of cool. And like, uh, we had one when I was growing up, and we never used it for anything. So I always asked my mom, like, what is this for? And she's like, oh, it's for making burgers. But she would make burgers and she would never use that thing. And then, like, <laughs> I actually don't know what it's for. I don't even know if it's really supposed to be used for cast iron or only if you want to take it down to, like, to its, like, bare bones. Or maybe you're supposed to s- scrub a hamburger grill with it and it is for hamburgers. I, I'm not yeah. sure, but we have, like, a piece of you know, chain mail in our house now. So I think that's a success also. <laughs> yeah. You get enough of those. You can make a, a, like a bed sheet out of them. Yeah. 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 Right, yeah. yeah. Don't need a weighted blanket. <laughs> we, we, uh, we could get it to, we could just get more of it and get into medieval cosplay. And then it would be like a one up on the people, you know, in Texas who like walk around with like firearms. You oh, know? That's so 19th century of you. Like, <laughs> you know, this is the 1100s. You know. <laughs> I I would Mother actually be not at all surprised if like it's totally legal to own like a, an assault rifle in Texas, but not a mace. Yeah, yeah, that's. I bet you can't be. open yeah. carry like a, a can't open carry a dildo here, which led to like a very, very <laughs> on, on university campuses. Yeah, so yeah. it led to like a very interesting yeah. protest. <laughs> you can't open carry like a claymore, but you could you could open carry the the claymore the landmine. But not the sword. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Like, it, like, what's the important thing? Is it that it includes gunpowder? Is that what makes it like? A, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Pieces of it fly off, and its intended use is that like what makes it acceptable? Whereas if it's just a blade, it's not allowed. Yeah, I don't know, but it it kind of like brings up like a lot of a lot of interesting questions because um, you can't carry like um, a representation of a penis. Whereas like if you're not in the U.S., this is going to be a shock to you. But many people have these things called truck nuts, which are like, 
um, you know, like testicles that you put on the back of your truck just in case uh, nobody knew what an asshole you were. <laughs> now, like, it's clear to everybody uh, exactly what kind of asshole you are. So you can decorate your pickup truck with this, like, pornographic thing, but you cannot carry, like, a representation of the penis around. So to me, like, this is, like, really an opportunity to kind of... um to kind of like take this in new directions. What if the penis has is a gun? What if it can <laughs> fire? What if it can fire projectiles at you? The, pe- the penis rule only applies on uh, public university campuses. Like you, that's, this was the protest. Like people attached dildos to their backpacks, which was not allowed oh. in pro- protest of like concealed carry rules that were going to allow people to carry concealed firearms into classrooms on University of Texas campuses. Um, right oh, there's ways we could still test this like we could get a set of truck nuts and we could attach them to like our car and i could drive it to campus and see if like i get cited for having truck nuts yeah, but, on our car but, 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 like, i could attach even, them to university vehicles even more fun like what's what's the what's the problem with like the representation of like a of genitals here like what is the problem so you know like go find yourself some like public thing that you don't like like an old confederate statue that hasn't been right down. right you know, run up to it and super glue a cock to it. You know, this should be our, like, our protest for everything. Just glue a cock to the thing that you don't like. <laughs> yeah. Put Steamboat Willie on it and watch Disney destroy it. <laughs> Tuck, like, a, a little note into each cock that says, like, this is a partnership between you and a tool. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. I got my wife um, a set of crock nuts okay. for Christmas, which are, they're like truck nuts, but you attach them to your sandals. <laughs> How did she respond? Huh. Uh, I, I think she, what she actually said was that these won't fit on my sandals, but I, <laughs> what I think she meant was that I don't want to wear these. Okay, well. I, I know so many people who I assumed would be interested in crock nuts, at least as a joke. And some of them laughed, but nobody wanted to take them off our hands, so they're still here in the house. This yeah. is what Craigslist is for. Yeah. Like, it's either, yeah. either something you're trying to give away for free, or it's a missed connections. Yeah. I just, <laughs> just moved to Texas. Like, like once you yeah. move to Texas, like, everything is so strange. Like, you're just floating on this. Yeah, um, no, you could, the, the crock nuts will just float away from you because they want to find their, their matching their pair. Their home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So here's a, here's another idea. I can't remember if I've brought this up on the show before, but they only sell you one truck nut, a single nut. A single nut. And okay. you, you know you've found your soulmate when you find you, – you park next to them and the nuts match. <laughs> huh. It would uh, give us like more options than like online dating has probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like – Desire to attach a single truck nut to your vehicle is like a certain kind of sexual orientation, and it's not going to be compatible with other sexual orientations. And maybe that's the point in this example. <laughs> I have to think through the implications of this. <laughs> or just, you know, attach a single truck nut to your to your uh, modest academic um, like, like Professor Clark. Car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Clark. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our professor's card, a little, you know, hatchback with the university sticker and the single truck nut. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Students will think it's charming. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Sure. Uh, David, your topic is Schmalhausen and Vernadsky, my own personal ARG. Erica strongly encouraged me to uh, bring up this topic on the podcast, and I'm really excited to have the chance to talk about it. So, um, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and about three years ago, so before the pandemic, I started writing a paper with a colleague at another university, and we decided to take a historical perspective on our topic. And what this meant in practice was that I had to go back and read all these things that I should have read 10 or 15 years ago, given my field of study, old papers from the 1930s, the 40s, and the 50s, and read more about the history of my own field of study. We've always probably had some moment where we are engaged in some kind of creative activity or scholarly activity where we say to ourselves, like, oh, you know, I really should take the time to, like, read this classic work, or I really should take the time to, like, is that thing I never did in my training, and I should take the time to read that. And so this was my chance to do that. So I spent all this time reading about 
these old books and reading about the history of evolutionary biology. And in particular, I, I focused a lot on a period called the modern synthesis, which from the 1930s to the 1950s in the study of evolution, it's where we where scientists kind of all came to a general understanding about how evolution works. That's the same way that evolution is explained to you in your like high school biology textbook or a college biology textbook. So I read all these people for the first time and learned more about them and learned how to actually keep their names straight because I had heard of them or I hadn't really like read their works before, even though I'd heard of all their names. And one of the things that was surprising about this was to discover that um, there was this whole like parallel world about of the modern synthesis that had happened um, outside of the United States and Great Britain, which is the way that it's usually portrayed, you know, in the United States and in biology classes. Um, and so I learned about some very interesting historical figures, including Ivan Schmalhausen and Vladimir Vernadsky, um, and a number of others. And um, I was really amazed to learn about these Soviet biologists who were active in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, because they had made important contributions to biology today that were recognized in the West at the time, but their names have since been forgotten. So they were hugely influential outside of the Eastern Bloc and also you know, internationally. Schmalhausen is a was an evolutionary developmental biologist and a geneticist, had a hypothesis called stabilizing selection, which is really important in evolutionary biology. Um, he was the first person to originate it. This is a concept that's in all introductory evolutionary biology textbooks, almost never with his name attached to it. Um, but Schmalhausen had this amazing career where he um, spent most, most of his career in Kiev in Ukraine and actually had his career interrupted initially by World War II when the Soviet Union evacuated all of its um, scientists, its top scientists, to Kazakhstan, so that there was no way that the Germans would ever be able to capture them, no matter how far the Germans advanced into the Soviet Union. And um, he and all these other people like Vladimir Vernadsky, who is the popularizer of the concept of the biosphere, and wrote a book that was widely read in the West and is responsible for popularizing the concept of the Earth as a single ecological unit, while they were all stuck in Kazakhstan during World War II, like completely isolated from the Eastern Front. Um, they all found themselves like writing books because they had nothing else to do. <laughs> they had lots of time. They weren't like teaching classes or running labs, really. <laughs> so um, Schmalhausen wrote a book that was eventually published after the war that, you know, we now own a copy of and has been translated into English. It was like fascinating to read about these people. Then they, after the war ended, they, you know, returned to their original universities in Kiev or Moscow or or wherever, various places. And um, those that were still active working in genetics, many of them had their careers interrupted and they were prevented from doing work for a long time because they there was a ideological um, purge that went on at the time in the Soviet Union against Mendelian genetics. So like a against a scientific notion of genetics, the same type of genetics that we learn today in textbooks. This was considered um, uncommunist and it was sort of it was considered dangerous by Stalin. Um, and by other people who worked for Stalin. And so all of these biologists who had, been, like Schmalhausen, who had worked on this sort of thing, um, had their materials destroyed, and in some places were forbidden from returning to work, and were sent to small isolated institutes where they weren't going to infect anybody with their dangerous ideas. And in many cases, those who lived long enough eventually got rehabilitated after Stalin died and were able to sort of partly return to their prior work, um, despite this period in which genetics knowledge was suppressed. And so it was this like really kind of amazing, I got very into this rabbit hole of finding out more about these people. And Erica said, like, this is kind of like your own personal ARG that you're doing all by yourself as a one person ARG. <laughs> you're finding out about these people and then you like dig up more clues about them. It was interesting in a couple different ways. One was to recognize these people who had made these contributions, but I had not heard of their names before, but I knew of their contributions. So that was kind of humbling. Um, to realize that sometimes like these contributions actually outlast knowledge of the people who made those contributions. I was also really humbled by like what people can achieve under less than ideal circumstances. I was really moved by this in 2019. And then when the pandemic happened in 2020, I felt kind of less moved by it because I felt like I didn't get much done during the, during the first part of the pandemic. You just need to, you <laughs> need to be was, put in a Soviet prison to, I, I, to really achieve I, I, your goals. I need to be evacuated to Kazakhstan for a couple of years <laughs> rather than really like staying at home in Arizona. For, you know, right, right. And, and only fed wilted spinach or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah, apparently it was like a really beautiful place they were evacuated to. Like they were next to a lake and like a little resort town uh, in the middle of literally in the middle of nowhere. They could take walks around the lake and stuff. Schmalhausen apparently adopted a wolf cub in Kazakhstan. And when like the 
war ended and he was able to return to his flat in um, i think he was in moscow at the time returned to his old flat in moscow he like brought the wolf with him and kept it as a pet in his apartment um <laughs> so but um i learned a lot of these details through a really amazing book um by a woman named risa berg risa berg was one of these geneticists who worked on um mendelian genetics and and she was a generation younger than schmalhausen and had trained with him really at an early career stage she, her work was disrupted by this um suppression of research into mendelian genetics or like real genetics um in favor of like in favor of research into these baseless hypotheses that genes don't really exist and genetics you know is just a western ideological construct and organisms evolve because they acquire influences from their environment during their lifetime and they pass those influences in some form to their offspring who retain the parents characteristics acquired characteristics that way and she writes about um being in an academic system in which like people sold themselves over to this and um you know dedicated their career and resources to investigating ideas that many people actually understood were entirely false uh, but it was a way to make a career at the time and ultimately she um left the so was able to claim asylum um from the Soviet Union in the 70s and emigrated to the US, became a professor at the University of Wisconsin and then at Washington University in St. Louis, and wrote a book in Russian, which she published in the United States, um, which was then translated into English called Acquired Traits. And she talks about this um, like totally amazing life story, um, knowing all these like super famous biologists who were working in the Soviet Union at the time, growing up after the Russian Revolution in St. Petersburg, um, going witnessing this process in which scientific um, certain areas of science were suppressed in a very organized fashion for ideological reasons only, which was very a very interesting thing to read also right before the COVID nineteen pandemic, <laughs> um, and then kind of like how she you know found her community of fellow free thinkers you know in Siberia, which is where she was living at the time, and the things she was able to do there with those you know sort of colleagues and friends before she claimed asylum in the United States. So I, I highly recommend um, the book Acquired Traits by Risa Berg, which is a really amazing uh, book if you're interested in the history of science or the history of um, Russia and the Soviet Union. Yeah, like just it's a totally amazing window into like very detailed window into like a type of life that uh, most of us can only begin to imagine. I was kind of um, thinking though that like uh, there's so much knowledge uh, in here and there's so much complexity and stuff that um, really it should be written up as an org that like teaches people uh who these characters are and their relationships to each other because otherwise like people don't have time uh unless it's kind of gamified and then they can like kind of see down to where the next thing is coming because uh you know they they know which characters are going to get introduced they could like do their own research and um kind of like create a community of people who are like knowledgeable about these particular scientists. <laughs> yeah, we have to convince the game detectives people that there's some sort of pop culture thing at the end of this tunnel. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And set yeah. them loose. Yeah, exactly. Nobody is really retelling this history and the books that contain it are kind of going out of print and stuff like that. But um it's exactly the kind of thing that's like just out of reach of game writers. Um, this kind of like world building uh, that uh, seems so real because it is so real. <laughs> 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 you know, and it, it of course it has like a lot to to say about um, trying to do work under trying to make scientific advances under high pressure situations and stuff. Like, I think it would be like a good story to. Um, to reiterate to people yeah that's that's really neat yeah it's funny it's it's interesting also like having observed an arg um you know close hand but not taken part in one to then have the experience of engaging in your own personal arg that like only you care about um <laughs> and doesn't lead to any goal except knowing more facts <laughs> but but like but real but real you know looking real things up in this kind of like um falling into this kind of rabbit hole it's funny that it has a lot of these similar attributes you know like this sort of sense of like obsession i shouldn't be doing this it's like not what my this is not what this paper i was writing was about this was all like became totally tangential you know like i found like five or six different leads which do i pursue they all go in different directions everything seems to connect back to the world that i know and it does in very complicated ways but it's like too complicated to like bother explaining to anybody <laughs> <laughs> well i mean the the arg the i think the people the reason people it appeals to people is that it is 
reminiscent of actual pursuit of like solving a mystery, mm-hmm. right. actual investigation, which is what you're really doing. You're actually right. like you're doing what ARG solvers are pretending to do. Yeah. And and presumably like maybe this is less true of ARGs, but like in game design, kind of the point of a game in many respects is to like trigger the same feelings of satisfaction that you get from doing actual work oh, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah more efficiently yeah right right yeah than the work right. itself does and so uh presumably if you were doing an ARG you would you're feeling very satisfied with the 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 uh mystery you're uncovering piece by piece yeah if you were playing a game i bet that satisfaction would come more quickly and more easily yeah uh but that might actually not be true like ARGs are notoriously like drip feedy and difficult yeah. so that that's that's an interesting possible exception to that rule. Yeah, and, and the drip feedy aspect is what makes ARGs very similar to like scholarly activity, even if it's kind of like in my case armchair scholarly activity. <laughs> this right. Topic. By by armchair scholarly activity, do you mean reading a book? No, no, I mean like uh, like I was supposed to be writing a paper about like concepts in evolutionary biology, and instead I was like spending a lot of my time looking on Google Scholar, you know, for, like the pages that have been created, like decades after the deaths of these individuals by their fans, I guess, that are oh. pages that have, you know, compiled most of their papers and like, you know, going to the university library and like getting these history books out, like virtually a tiny bit of this did make it into the paper, but it was like really tangential. Like it was, it was not probably what I should have been doing with my time, but it was somehow the thing that was like the most intellectually exciting to me. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's better written than most args. <laughs> because it's real because it's real because real, it's not real real real, real because a real sense of danger <laughs> yeah. but I, I think yeah i think that's interesting i think that, like also i think there's this um people who do like non-fiction scholarly activity occasionally talk about how there's this um kind of a creativity that exists in artistic creation which they either like think gets captured in certain kinds of non-fiction scholarly activity or they like wish they could capture it mm. um and i feel like there are these interesting like kind of zones of overlap where maybe the emotions are similar in some cases and that's what makes people um have these like mutual admirations mm. of each other's like endeavors or something mm-hmm. i'm not sure if this is what you were getting at but i feel like one thing that real life has one advantage real life has over storytelling is that the the events that happen can be as implausible as you can imagine and you have no choice but to believe them right. because yeah. they're real. Right. right. Whereas yeah. in fiction, like if anything half as audacious happened as happens in real life regularly, you'd be like, that's, this is, this is bullshit. This could never happen. <laughs> right. This, yeah. is, this is implausible. Yeah. One of these, uh, one of these, to illustrate your point, um, one of these figures that I learned about who I had sort of vaguely been aware of beforehand was a guy named Herman Mueller. And he, if you, one who has taken a biology class might know him for winning the Nobel Prize for discovering that radiation, like x-rays, cause mutations and therefore disease. But he was an American geneticist who um, apparently, according to his Wikipedia article, became disenchanted with capitalism while working at the University of Texas um, and decided to move to a different country. Felt kind of left-leaning politically. He ended up in the Soviet Union in the 20s. He was a mentor to Risa Berg, who wrote the book Acquired Traits that I've just mentioned. So she writes about having him as like a advisor, basically. He learned Russian although i gather he spoke in english to a lot of these soviet scientists anyway um and he spent like about a decade in the soviet union eventually like as the 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 suppression and persecution of mendelian genetics became stronger and stronger he realized he sort of had to leave nobody was coming to save him like he was going to be an american stuck in stalin's soviet union he could still leave if he left early but otherwise things would be very dangerous for him um this is a story that carl sagan also tells in his book the demon haunted world and uh this is, and then he returned to the United States and later won the Nobel Prize and so on. But um, it's one of these things where, like, I never would have made up the idea that, like, an American Nobel Prize winner would have decided to spend a decade of his life in so- the Soviet Union when Stalin was premier. Measuring, <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, bringing the first fruit flies to the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know, like, you know like, mentoring all these, like, young Soviet scientists who lived until the end of the 20th century. Um you know, it would never would have made this up. I think it's just totally implausible, but it is actually something that happened. And then there's Timofey Brasovsky, right? Who yeah, who like ended up. I don't know the story as well as you. Yeah, do, but there's another one of these characters, uh, Nikolai Timofey Brasovsky, who's uh, probably like the least remembered of these sort of group of people. Um, 
who did work in radiation genetics um, because he knew Mueller. He was from the Soviet Union and he got a job. I guess this would have been the tw- late 20s or very early 30s. He got a job in Br- Berlin that was considered very prestigious. And so um, he left the Soviet Union to work in Berlin as a geneticist. And after a certain point in the 30s, he realized that um, as a Soviet citizen in Nazi Germany, who was at the time being left alone by the Nazi authorities for the most part, um, he didn't really have the ability to safely return to the Soviet Union, even though he didn't really feel safe in Nazi Germany either. Um, in the Soviet Union, he'd be he'd be thrown in the gulag as a Nazi collaborator, regardless of his actual political views or his actual actions. But in Nazi Germany, he obviously didn't feel safe either. Anyway, while he was sort of contemplating the fact that he had no good options, war broke out between the Soviet Union and Germany. Um, and as the war continued, he eventually got to the point in the war where he decided that he was just going to stay with his institute and keep trying to run things. They kept trying to run the fruit fly colonies and so forth and do minimal experiments in a total abs- with a near total absence of resources. Because what else are they going to do? As the war really came close to an ending and the Red Army advanced on Berlin, he decided that he was going to stay put with his institute and wait until the Soviet army showed up and explain to them in Russian that he was a fellow Soviet citizen and what the institute was for and why they shouldn't destroy it. Um, and he did this and he prevented the institute from being destroyed. Um, wow, it works. It worked, right. Yeah, it's like totally insane, right? Like, wait for them to show up, wait for a Russian to show up and explain to them what's going on. Right? <laughs> um, um, and what then happened was they successfully put a lot of pressure on him to return to the Soviet Union, where they promptly accused him of being a Nazi collaborator. And then he spent briefly spent some time in a um, in a gulag before being pulled because he understood the genetics of radiation poisoning, which was extremely important for any country with a nuclear weapons program. Um, and they pulled him out of the gulag um, and then sort of sent him to like a very isolated institute where he wasn't really allowed to interact with the broader community, but he was allowed to have people to work with but he was also, and do radiation he genetics had also research. Gone blind. Uh, oh yeah, malnutrition in the, in right. the gulag. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so his wife Elena Timofeeva Rosovskaya, who was also a geneticist and is even less remembered than he is, acted as a sort of eyes and hands in this, like writing for him and reading things out loud to him. Um, during the latter part of his life, because that was the only they could only do science by working together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, wow. He, yeah, he he lived. He died in nineteen eighty or nineteen ninety something like that. He lived to be quite late. He ended up meeting a bunch of this like later generation Western biologists. He was finally allowed to travel abroad again in the sixties and seventies. We like to think of our lives as interesting, but like. Our lives are not nearly as interesting as these people's lives. There's like nothing to remember about us. I, I, I came to consider that a blessing, and, and I came to that conclusion before the pandemic started. Right, right. Yeah. While I was reading all these books. Yeah. Cheers to a boring life. <laughs> yeah, my life is interesting enough for me. I'll tell you that yes. much. Yeah. Yeah. Are yeah. we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. My topic is stop trying to make a wedge as a machine happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Uh, is this the sense that a wedge is a, is is a wedge one of the simple machines? It's, yeah, yeah, like a floor that's slightly tilted that counts as a machine. <laughs> oh, I see where you're going with this. Wait, is it, wait, is the wedge considered a machine, or is the yeah. inclined plane considered a machine? Uh, I think they're they're considered to be the same machine. Okay, yeah, they're the same thing. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, huh. it seems. Yeah, it seems a little dopey to be a machine, right? Well, right, and and I'm sure, like, so I was looking into this. Five hundred years ago, a machine meant any man-made construction. So I, I'm sure at some point, a machine just meant tool, right, or contrivance, or something like that. But nowadays, machine means you know something a lot more like something with move, moving parts or something that is. This is similarly complicated, like a computer. But physicists are still trying to, like, if you go to the Wikipedia page for for machine, you will see a definition that is like very carefully constructed to include both the kind of machine that people actually mean when they say machine and a wedge. <laughs> huh. What if you attached like batteries to the wedge or like? Um- you had like an electric powered wedge. Would that make it a machine? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If it's an electric wedge, okay. yes, definitely. Okay. But the, that but counts. the question is like, what's the simplest thing that's like um, a machine? And it's like, it's basically like a plane that is like asymmetric to gravity. Right. 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 Yes. That doesn't seem yeah. like, it, I mean, it seems like you're, first of all, 
you're thinking that gravity exists and like not all the machines need gravity to work right like uh, well a wedge can be used to like separate things yeah that's true but it has to be like uneven with respect to each of its edges yeah yeah it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a machine to me it yep. seems like um it seems like they should categorize that as math like just have a disambiguation page like were you here for math actually cuz like we're going to talk about big boy machines now like the kinds of wedges <laughs> with batteries <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean this is this is an ongoing problem with many different like i've complained about this on the show before the uh Un- unusability to the lay reader of like math Wikipedia or yeah. Oh, yeah, pharmaceutical yeah. Wikipedia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely useful information that a regular person could get out of some of these math concepts yeah. or a page yeah. about a drug. Yeah. Instead, they get like, here is a, a splurge of information that is only parsable by someone who is deep in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I felt this quite acutely. Like I, I don't have like a ton of math background, but I am like a professional scientist, and I, I will go right. to the math articles in Wikipedia or the chemistry ones to try to get like you know what is this thing that I come across in a paper, and I need to know what it is, some sort of, in order to move on with what I'm doing. And yeah, having like a great deal of difficulty. The chemistry ones, I feel like I can sort of get through like the the various organic compounds. Like I can kind of figure out what I need out of those articles. But the math ones, it's like I feel like I know less what that area of math actually is after trying to read the article than I did going into it. <laughs> it's just like you had some idea before and afterwards you're just like, well, maybe not. I don't know. It's possible my idea going in was entirely wrong. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I yeah. have been disabused of my like confidence, but yeah, but yeah, I know yeah. I hear you about this. Like this is a, even for like people in other science, natural science fields, like yeah. the articles are kind of not very uh, interoperable. Yeah, yeah. And I I wonder, like, I I always assumed that this is like, well, these people are experts in their field, and they assume that because they're experts at their thing, they therefore are also experts at making an encyclopedia. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, or or at least are are experts at education. Yeah. Neither of which is is the case, apparently. Yeah. But, But it's not experts in every field that are like that. Right. Like, not every field in Wikipedia is like this. Right. If it were, no one would use the site. Yeah. So I was, uh, I had like a, a software job when the math Wikipedia didn't quite yet exist. I was there, you know, when these things like weren't online to be described to anyone. So I have like multiple feelings about it. Like, first of all, I have a I have a master's degree in physics, uh, and I'm a mathematical ecologist, so I should be able to read these things. And I also can't read them for the most part, so it kind of sucks. But at the same time, I'm like, hooray, it's there. So like, yeah. just just wait. Like somebody will, somebody like smart will come through and say very rich and deep things that are correct about like the meta math and metaphysics of these things. Uh, that won't be taken down by the people who are like um, <laughs> waving to equations and being like the only thing that is uh, uh, self-consistent is the presence of these equations is in in the presence of other equations and they do not need to be described and in fact describing them ruins them somehow. <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was an XKCD uh, comic about. 10 or 15 years ago that made fun of wikipedia in the format of what at the time was a stereotypical wikipedia article so it used to be that wikipedia articles generally had this kind of like weirdly um baroque and uh contorted and kind of like um, pretentious and burdensome way of introducing their topics like in the first paragraph where they define what the thing is the article is about this xkcd comic which i cannot clearly remember what it said it was like a extremely funny parody of this that also like was accurate in the same way with all these like jargon that nobody uses and i think like a lot of the subject areas have been kind of cleaned up in the past like 10 or 15 years and don't Mm -hmm. have those attributes Mm -hmm. i don't even know if i'd find the article the comic funny anymore but uh yeah maybe now it's just like what is it what are you even talking about (laughs) right yeah exactly (laughs) Uh, i can maybe i can find it uh, in time for the lotner notes (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, i'd I'd be very curious to see that or or i suppose i could just like go look at wikipedia page histories from 15 years ago right i I, (laughs) 
<laughs> I am uh, heartened by the idea that like maybe it used it used to be that every Wikipedia page was like this, but they're slowly getting better. <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping that it's not just that like well things also could get worse. Right. Yeah. It's very weird. It's very um, patchy and heterogeneous, I would say. Like, the math stuff I find, like, very comprehensive, even if I don't understand it. There are always, like, links to the things that describe the next thing and the next thing and the sub thing Mm. and the disambiguation thing. Whereas, like, um, I don't totally understand the rules of Wikipedia. So, um, like, at some point, I tried to start a wildlife ecologist page and they like lumped it into wildlife biologist which is not the same thing and uh like i don't know if wildlife ecology exists there but at the time that i was doing it which was not long ago i mean I'm, i'm talking maybe like eight or nine years ago like i was fighting with people about whether like wildlife ecology is its own discipline which it is and then wildlife biology was defined by Wildlife biologists include, uh, you know, Steve Irwin and um, Jane Goodall and like this other famous person. And you can be hired by a government agency for this amount of money in U.S. dollars as a wildlife biologist. <laughs> no description of like um, what it entails, like what makes it different from uh, conservation biology or wildlife ecology or anything like that. And, um, like at that time, the math stuff was, was going. Um, but like there's just a ton of ecology stuff that's missing. And it's so sad to me because like then you look at like a video game page and like it's this active page where everybody has an opinion and it's like 30 miles long and it's got all these like outlinks and, you know, different parts are being like edited as you read it and stuff. And like, all of the ecology stuff is like being ignored. I I stopped trying to like make headway with the editors because I don't I don't understand what it is that I'm supposed to be um, saying that like gets taken down all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, what you need is you need a um, someone needs to write an article and publish it, and it doesn't even have to be in like a peer reviewed journal or anything. It could be published on like the Forbes blogging system or whatever about how a wildlife ecologist and a wildlife biologist are not the same thing. And that's what you start the page with is a citation to that article. And not spending $5,000 to publish like why a wildlife biologist isn't a wildlife ecologist. Oh, do you have to pay money to publish things on that site? You have to pay money to publish, right? This is like the pay to publish. No, I don't, I don't even mean like you don't need to cite a real paper. You could cite, you could cite a blog. As long as it's not original research. All right. Yeah, this is definitely not original research. Okay. You, okay. You could create a bunch of bots on Twitter that like amplify this like message. I like, wonder. I wonder. Like what a wildlife the, ecologist is not a wildlife biologist. What the shittiest thing you could cite is like? What is the shittiest thing <laughs> that is cited on Wikipedia as like a source of information? I've seen tweets cited. Like maybe like yeah. literal shit. Like I wrote wildlife biologist. <laughs> yeah. No, here's a picture of picture of some shit. <laughs> Not equal to wildlife ecologist in shit on my wall. Here's a picture. Citation one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had I had this I had this experience once. Like as a college student, I like as I was very ambitious, and I would like go get the scientific journal Nature, like you know the world's most prestigious scientific journal. I would look at that week's issue in the university library and like try to read as much of it as I could figure out, which was very little. And there was some article in it about like estimating calculations involving like the economics of climate change, like a one pager or something. And I tried to read this anyway, like in the first paragraph, basically, I think the first citation is like the words of George W. Bush um, on the topic of like some assertion about how we can't do anything about climate change because it's too expensive. Um, And then the article proceeds to show that this is apparently not true. Um, but like, you know, George W. Bush is not a peer reviewed scientific source. <laughs> and of course, like, but there's like no way out for these scientific articles. They have to cite something. So you cite like the remarks by George W. Bush on this occasion, you know, on this date, you know, this location, you know, and explain how to find them if you want to verify them yourself. And I was just kind of thinking about this and I was like, you know, George W. Bush is not a peer reviewed scientific source. If I want to be cited in nature, I have to actually write a paper 
and it has to go through peer review and <laughs> be evaluated by anonymous scientists. But George W. Bush just gets to say shit, and it can be cited in the yeah, future. Well, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I understand now why this is the case. But like, <laughs> it, it's probably harder to get elected president. So there is that. That is certainly true. Yeah, I'll grant you that. No, I understand now, like why. But you it's harder have to, to be a football player, but that doesn't mean that you can say anything that you want to. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get- but but I think I think he's got it. I think he's found the shittiest source of information on Wikipedia. Like the words of George W. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> are we uh, Are we ready for another topic? Sure. <laughs> we're for this topic. We're going to be reading a poem, "The Poetry Teacher" by Mary Oliver. Who would like to read this poem? Uh, Do you want to read it, David? Sure. I mean, I picked the poem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The Poetry Teacher by Mary Oliver. The university gave me a new elegant classroom to teach in. Only one thing, they said. You can't bring your dog. It's in my contract, I said. I had made sure of that. We bargained, and I moved to an old classroom in an old building, propped the door open, kept a bowl of water in the room. I could hear Ben, among other voices, barking, howling in the distance. Then they would all arrive. Ben, his pals, maybe an unknown dog or two, all of them thirsty and happy. They drank, they flung themselves down among the students. The students loved it. They all wrote thirsty, happy poems. Are the students also dogs? <laughs> They're running an airport. <laughs> yeah, so I, I... Right, yes, it's a, it's a dog airport. Um, I, this has not occurred to me, but like, the thing when I feel like when I read Mary Oliver's poetry is it's like very straightforward, which is part of the appeal. But then I always wonder whether there's some layer that I'm missing, right? And there probably is. But in this case, like now I wonder whether the layer that I'm missing is that the students are also dogs. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, maybe even the teacher is a dog. In fact, perhaps, you know, the person writing the, the voice of the poem is the dog. Maybe the university administrators are dogs. Perhaps we are also dogs. Yeah, but, but you can't bring your dog. Right, you can't bring your dog. I actually think that this is kind of a perfect poem. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know anything about her writing process, but it feels like it feels like it was written down in like one take or something. It's the poetry teacher. It's called the poetry teacher, and it's supposed to be written from the professor's voice. But the poetry teacher is probably the dogs, right? And like the the, <laughs> the dogs are actually like teaching the students how to write like thirsty, happy poems. But this is also like a thirsty, happy poem about Ben, his pals, and maybe an unknown dog or two. You know, like it's yeah. not that the the students are dogs, but like, you know, like truly like uh, this is a reflection of uh, the lesson that the dogs have to teach the, the poetry students. It's a nice poem. Her, her poems can be very um, melancholy and, and sad and quite deep and stuff, but this is like this is kind of like a light take that still has like emotional realness to it. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. Yeah. She really likes the relationships, the friendships and relationships that she has had with her various dogs or like a very common theme. What book did this come out of? This is from dog songs, which is a 2013 collection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She has a lot of poems about her dogs and stuff. So we've talked before about how a lot of the time a poem will just read like it's, it's just prose with extra line breaks. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely this poem. <laughs> this one doesn't really even have the line breaks. Like it, it the lines are shorter than like they don't stretch across the screen. But I really, really give the imp- they give the impression that like this is just where the word word wrap happened to go. Yeah. Yeah. They, they look that way, but it's they've got exactly the same line breaks in the like book copy of her poems that I have that I found out about the poem in. I checked. Um, okay. So I think the line breaks are meant to be there, but it does it does look like you're reading like prose on a phone screen or something, um, right? Like the way that they've got where they have the line breaks, like it's, it hard. It looks like a prose poem almost. I mean, she must have made choices about where those line breaks went. Yeah, she didn't put them in entire phrases. Like there's no yeah. implied pause for you to take when you're reading this. Like the the poem just kind of. Yeah, like the the last line break in the poem is between the students loved and it. Right, right. The yeah. end of the sentence is it. Like that that doesn't. Maybe there's some intention there, but it really just looks like that's just where the line yeah. break happened to fall to me. But, but the whole yeah. poem is like that. Like, yeah. um, we moved into yeah, yeah, well, an that's old what I mean. Classroom propped the door open, kept a bowl of water. Yeah, yeah. In the room, I could hear the I could hear Ben among the other voices barking. 
right? Like, yeah. there's, there's nothing in there that um, is like a complete phrase that you would naturally stop at. So it does keep you reading through it kind of naturally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's entirely possible this is, I am reading too much into this, but I do wonder like whether there was like conscious thought that went into like, where can I put the line breaks where they seem the least like intentional line breaks? Yeah. Um, no, she must. She had to yeah. choose those things. She's yeah, not, she's not a naive poet. Not a naive poet. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like these might be like the maximally like unnoticeable places to put right. the line breaks. You yeah. know, to give it the impression of being yeah. prose. Maybe the only difference between poetry and prose at at the foundation is you pick where to put the line breaks. So these yeah. are like micro short stories. With yeah, line breaks. And then there could also be these other optional features, like maybe it rhymes, maybe it has a meter. Right. But at minimum, you pick where to put the line breaks, and that's the difference. Yeah, at this point in history, that might be the might be the right way to think about it. I feel like a long time ago, poetry would have often had it had meter and rhyme, and even if it wasn't written with the kinds of line breaks we have now, like there was sort of a meter meter and or rhyme that was it was expected to follow. Um, yeah, but obviously, like in modern poetry in English, this is not the case. Like you need you need to have neither meter nor rhyme. At which point it's just the line breaks that make it clear. How how can we make it even closer? Like what can we remove from from this distinction to make it the distinction even less of a distinction? Have you heard of prose poems? I uh, have now. Now yeah. that you've said the words, <laughs> so, I don't know a lot about them. I, like actually, there are a few by Mary Oliver, including in the collection that this one came from. But um, they lack line breaks. They're just like a paragraph. <laughs> right, like, so, you know, so maybe right. some of them are two paragraphs but they're considered to be you know they're considered to be poems rather than like short stories and they're referred to at least in modern north american english they're called prose poems we could have a prose poem on the podcast in the future there's a it's like the wedge yeah. of the yeah. poetry world <laughs> right exactly right. yeah all right i'm gonna ding my pan to move on okay yep (laughs) yeah my topic is drinking vinegar so um i love food so i read a lot about food um i also have like tremendous allergies um so i read a lot about um, kind of nutrition and allergies and um i kind of uh landed on drinking vinegar as like one of these uh topics that is endlessly fascinating to me so let me let me pose a question to you um Given that doctors say like drinking a little bit of apple cider vinegar is good for your health, what is vinegar? Is it a carb? Is it a fat? Or is it a protein? David, don't answer. <laughs> you're asking. You're asking me. I'm asking you. What do you think it is? Do you think it's a carb, a fat, or a protein? Uh, I think it's closest to carb. Why? Uh, because I, I associate fermentation with alcohol. Okay. And because alcohol is processed in the, like this kind of the same way that sugar is. Okay, okay, that's that's a that's a great line of thinking. The other thing that you know about vinegar is that it's, it's acidic, right? Right. So, what are the other acids that you know in simple foods? Yeah, there's like citrus juices. Mm, there's like amino acids, right? Like fundamental. Oh, simpler than that. Yeah. Fundamental building blocks of foods, amino acids, which are much larger than acetic acid. Uh-huh. There are fatty acids. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so vinegar is actually a short chain fatty acid. Are, wait, okay. I was hoping where you were going with this was that like all the kinds of nutrients we eat are actually acids. No. <laughs> That'd be cool, but no. <laughs> This is why you should never eat a eat a base because like <laughs> don't you'll like go poof. You just dissolve. You'll dissolve right? All your base are belonging non food groups. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so anyway, um, vinegars are like fascinating. So they're um, they're short chain fatty acids. So most people uh, now are deficient in fatty acids. So we take like omega three six nines and stuff like that. Um, and then they tell you like, oh, drink medium chain fatty acids if you want to do this like bulletproof coffee thing. So doctors will tell you like, okay, drinking vinegar is good for you because it's acidic. And um, over time, as you age, your stomach acid, the stomach acid that you produce is like diminished. So drinking acid with food allows you to digest your food more properly. And that's why it's good for you. But 
you know, whether that's true or not, that's kind of like not what vinegar is doing for you. Um, vinegar is this like um, very like fundamental thing that you need. You need these short chain fatty acids and the way that your body will produce them on its own is if you eat whole grains and if you eat like indigestible fibers, um, basically like your, uh, your intestines will produce them for your intestines. So the epithelial cells of your intestines, they don't use sugar and fat per se. They use short chain fatty acids to fuel themselves. So when you consume vinegar and when you consume things like um, prebiotics that create short chain fatty acids in your intestines, you're basically giving a boost to your intestinal health. And what this ends up doing, um, because like 70% of your um, immune system is tied up in trying to like deal with the constant influx of like um, foreign objects and, you know, viruses and bacteria and like toxins and all kinds of crazy stuff that you eat, right? Like it make sure that you are producing enough mucus in your intestines to create like a healthy barrier. It boosts the epithelial cells to like actually function. And um, I think it's kind of like why drinking vinegar is so good for you, why it causes people to lose weight, why it is used in multiple cultures to um, deal with all kinds of digestive problems, including ulcers, right? Like you would never think like, oh, I'm going to throw acid onto an ulcer and that's going to be the right way to handle this, this thing. But it really does like um, feed the, um, the lining of your digestive system. And so I think like um, this whole idea of like, you know, limiting calories and stuff like that to try and lose weight is, is going to be just dropped entirely this decade. And like people are going to be looking at fats and fatty acids as like the way forward with like good nutrition and holistic nutrition. So um, this is like a challenge to anybody who's like listening to this podcast is to drink like 15 to 30 milliliters um, per day with meals so that you're not drinking it on an empty stomach and you can mix it with water and stuff, but see how it makes you feel because like it's just a food. And it won't be bad for you, but it might actually be something that really makes you feel good and makes you feel better. And then that, the other thing about these vinegars, is, which is great, is like if you're kind of like a health nut, uh, you hate it when people ask you out for a drink because you feel like, oh, you know, <laughs> like I have to have a drink to appear like a social normal person. But you can make all kinds of things like that are called shrubs. You know, like um, I made like a peach and rosemary one. I made a strawberry and basil one. It's just like muddled fruit sitting in any kind of vinegar you like. So champagne vinegar, sherry vinegar, uh, white vinegar, apple cider vinegar, rice wine vinegar. And then you can seem like more sophisticated than your friends when you choose to have a shrub as your like pre-dinner drink rather than like a martini. Yeah, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. I'm drinking a shrub. I am. I am healthy as fuck. (laughs) <laughs> when you, you were suggesting apple cider vinegar does it have to be apple cider vinegar could it be like balsamic it, it can but balsamic vinegar has like a lot of sugars in it and um, yeah that's why it's good <laughs> i mean you could try it and also it's like whether regardless of like whether it's good for your guts like it's definitely bad for your teeth so you should like you should then like ruin the magic of it by then rinsing your mouth with like baking soda which tastes horrible <laughs> like don't neglect your teeth also (laughs) anyway that's my that's my plug for drinking vinegar um i think it's like uh it's like an easy project to do at home if you're bored and like um want to feel better is like try a little bit of vinegar (laughs) yeah this is this sounds fascinating yeah yeah yeah. i do think we are long overdue for like just a, a complete rethinking of of obesity and the causes of it Totally, totally, totally. Like everything that I've seen is like our nutritional system came out of like the wrong branch of the government. Like it came out of like treating us like like uh, endpoints for the agricultural delivery thing. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but I I agree with you. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm I'm excited because I really love butter. So like I'm I'm using butter in everything now. <laughs> yeah, butter, butter and vinegar together at last. Yeah, together at last. <laughs> and that's all the time we have for topic lords. Uh, Erica, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, mostly I spend my time in the Topic Lords Discord. Um, you know, if you're cool, please join us. If you're not, you know, you could find me on Twitter, uh, at YerikTRB, and, um, you can follow me there, and then I will follow you back and mute you. <laughs> <laughs> and David, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, people don't need to find me on the internet. <laughs> okay. I respect that. <laughs> thanks so much for being on <laughs> thank, thank you. you it's always a pleasure hi this is jim this is the audio i append to every episode of topic lords congratulations to our newly anointed lords this episode was edited by esper quinn who can also edit your episode if you contact them on twitter if you'd like more people to hear the show you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use you can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!